Lord, thank you so much for joining with us this morning. Lord, I thank you that we could be together. And God, I trust we have something to hear from you this morning. Lord, even as Jeremy prayed earlier, Lord, we, we, we trust there's something for us to hear where we can be doers of the word and not hearers only. Um, Lord, as we, we look into this passage about uh, prayer and asking of you and uh, what will be given? Lord, that's the question that's even on my heart as I read this. What will be given? You say, ask and you'll receive. What will be given? Lord, help us to go away from that with maybe a little more clarity of what will be given and, and maybe what it's not saying, too. Um, God, I just trust you have something for each one of us, me included. Lord, help me not to stand in the way of what you would communicate into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I have a lot to say this morning, so I'm just going to dive right into the passage because we might as well just get to the Word of God right away. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. If you've got a Bible, you're welcome to open to it. If you've got a phone and Bible app, we love those as well. It's also on the screen, at least here at the beginning. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 7, Jesus says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? Now, before we get into really the the meat of this passage, I just, I don't know. Something has always struck me that this passage is kind of funny. Right? Can you ever imagine that? Like, hey, Dad, can I have some bread? And anyone ever going, yeah, here's, here's a stone. <laughs> or, hey, Dad, can I have something to eat? I have some fish? Here's a snake. Right? I hate snakes. As they have like a joke in my house. My kids have these little rubber snakes. I don't know where we got them. I don't know. I really hate snakes. Why do we have toy snakes? I don't know, but we do. And periodically I'll find one under my pillow. <laughs> To me, this has always resonated with me. Yes, can I have this? Here's like the worst thing ever. (laughs) The snake, right? I think Jesus kind of has a sense of humor with that. But anyway, let's get to what I think is the big question, just in these few verses. The big question, I think, is this. When Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. And he repeats this, he can find, knock, and the door will be open. When he says, ask and it will be given to you, does he mean anything? Does he mean anything will be given to you? Will anything be given to you? Now, why is that an important question to ask and answer? Well, because if Jesus is saying, ask anything you want, and just because you've asked it, you'll receive it. If that's what he's saying, then by extension, we actually hear like, wow, I have control over my life, and I have control over some portion of the universe. Is that what Jesus is saying? You might say, that's kind of silly. Of course I don't have control over the universe, but there are many in our society today who teach this very thing. It's very easy to be deceived by it. We're going to talk about how we can get to being deceived by that, so let's just cut right to the thick of it. If I can ask for anything and I can receive it, and the only thing that limits it is my quote-unquote faith, then God is essentially just this like cosmic... ATM machine that doesn't have a pen. 
right? You just go up to it and you go, uh, $200, and I'll spit the $200. Or, I don't know if you guys, anyone's a member at Costco? I really like Costco because it's lots of stuff. i got six kids. Costco makes a lot of sense for my family. God would be sort of like Costco with no checkout. You show up with a cart and fill it up and roll out, and no one's there to check your receipt at the door. You just keep on rolling, right? Or, I don't know, has anyone ever been to Disney World? It's like one of my favorite places in the world to go. It'd be like going to Disney World and there's no ticket booth. You just walk in and enjoy and leave when you're done, right? If the only thing that limits God is my faith, then God is like those things, right? And it sounds good to us. It kind of sounds good. Wouldn't it be great if God was like that? Everybody loves goodies. I love goodies. I'd love for God to just be the dispenser of goodies. And I'm not being snarky because I think this is important because there's some who really interpret ask and you will receive this way. They think that anything you hope, anything you want, anything you dream, you just ask for it, and you have enough faith, and you're going to get it. And so the summary of you, of those who who think that, is they say this, faith is a force that I tap into to change the universe around me. There's obviously some problems with this view. We'll go through some of the problems. The first problem is this, is that God's sovereignty disappears. Sovereignty, well, that's a big word. What does that mean? Well, the definition just means supreme power. God's supreme power disappears. See, God, by definition, God is God because there's nothing outside of his power and there's nothing that has power over him. If something has power over God or there's something outside of God's power, he's not God anymore. So we start to see the problem here. But we'd say God is sovereign. And so, and we go back to the scenario of, oh, faith is a force I just tap into. If we go back to that scenario, who's sovereign? God or faith? Well, faith is actually sovereign in that scenario, not God. Because I just have to ask. So, who controls faith? Mm, I do, in that scenario. So, therefore, I'm actually sovereign over God. And therefore, God is no longer sovereign. God no longer has supreme power. He's therefore not God. That's the first reason we would reject this interpretation of the verse. second problem is this, is that it takes us to false logical conclusions. No, it'd be nice if we could just stop at that phrase. Oh, it's such a nice catchphrase. If I just have enough faith, I can believe, if I just believe and have enough faith, anything will be given to me. That's a great place to stop, but we have to go down the road to where it concludes logically. We have to. That's why I'm talking about this. And here's some of the conclusions we come to. The first one is you have to come to this. Say, as the controller of faith, I can become prosperous. I can become prosperous. But there's a problem with this. If I control what comes into my life to make me prosperous or not, then I become unsympathetic to those who are not prosperous, those who are poor. I can look at them judgmentally and say, you just need to have more faith. You don't need any help. We know the scripture doesn't teach us that. This also provides no answer to us for those who are prosperous, but who live in open rejection of God. How did they end up prosperous? It wasn't by faith, because they don't have any faith. What do we do about those people? That's a challenge. When we take this attitude of, I control faith and I can become prosperous, it makes us stop thinking about the choices we're making with our finances and our resources. We can become lazy 
We can spend and play ways that we shouldn't. It makes us just unwilling to consider our own choices. We go, oh, I just faith, I'll just sort of tap into the universe and it'll provide for me. And I can make bad choices. I know the scripture doesn't teach us that. And then we start to look at those in history, those who have been persecuted, those who are martyrs, those who have gone without and yet have had great faith, and we start to reject them. We say, man, they must have lacked faith, because if faith is a force I can tap into, and those people didn't tap into it, then they didn't really have faith. That's a problem. That's one problem. One false logical conclusion. A second one is this. As a controller of faith, I could be healed from illness. As a controller of faith, I can be healed from illness. See, when we do this, we conclude that those who are ill, and those who are infirm, and those who have disabilities are there because they don't have enough faith. And so we become unsympathetic to them, and we say, just have more faith and you'll be healed. It's your fault. It's not what God would have for us. And so again... Provides no answer for those who live in open opposition to God who are healthy or who have gotten healed from illnesses. It doesn't have any answer for that. And then, just like with money, it makes us unwilling to consider our own choices pertaining to health. Well, if I just sort of tap into the faith force, I can, you know, not exercise and not eat well, and we can make bad choices. That's the conclusion we come to. Third conclusion, a false logical conclusion we come to is that as a controller of faith, I can prevent my own death. And there's not a lot of people who are going to walk around and say this, but that's a conclusion you have to come to if you hold to this view. Well, if faith is just the force that I tap into to change the universe around me, I can stop myself from dying. It's obviously absurd, isn't it? It's like two things certain, right? Death and taxes, and you can cheat on your taxes, but you can't cheat death. It's going to happen. You can't prevent your own death. If you really could do these things, you could be like, I'm just going to manipulate my circumstances so that I don't ever die by faith. Obviously, that's absurd. And there's another ultimate logical conclusion, and usually people who talk about this don't ever end up here, but they ought to end up here, and it's this. It's saying, I have power over God. Do you have power over God? I don't have power over God. It's observationally false and blatantly blasphemous, isn't it? So usually people who teach this or who walk in this world, they don't cage it this way. They say something else like, well, I have the power of the Holy Spirit. So they kind of cage it in a different way of saying, I have God's power without saying that I'm God, but that's ultimately what they're saying. And ultimately when you say, oh, power over God is just the power of the Holy Spirit, it softens the edge, but it really flips the purpose of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? Why was the Holy Spirit given to us? It was given to us to work in us. It was not given to us so we could have the Holy Spirit as a tool to manipulate the universe. Amen. So those are some false conclusions that we come to. A third problem, in addition to false logical conclusions, is that Jesus actually contradicts himself. And it's not just scripturally. It's in this very Sermon on the Mount he would be contradicting himself if he said, ask and you receive, and he meant just tap into the faith force and manipulate the universe around you. He'd be contradicting himself right here in his own sermon that he's giving. If Jesus meant you can have anything you want, just ask in faith, why did he say these things? Why did he say, blessed are those who mourn? Why don't you just use the faith force to eliminate your sorrowful condition? 
Why did he say, give to the needy? Why would we give to the needy? They just need to have more faith and tap into the faith force. Why did he say, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth? Just use faith to ask for more treasures on earth. Why did he say, you cannot serve God and money? Man, if you're asking God to make you wealthy, does that kind of mean you're kind of serving money? He said, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, but if you're obsessed about asking for what you want, are you not anxious about your life? Jesus would be contradicting himself. I don't think Jesus is contradicting himself. The fourth problem is this. It's Satan's lie. It's Satan's lie. This is why we have to be so especially careful of this way of thinking. Because this was the first lie Satan told to humans. In the garden, he said, You shall be as God. We have to be really, really careful. We have to be so careful to say, I can manipulate the universe to get what I want because then you're saying I'm sovereign, which is to say I have power over God, which is to agree with Satan and say I am as God. And it's a lie. It's a lie. We need to shut the door on anything that teaches us that we have the ability to manipulate God because we don't. We know from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, It says, faith is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. And if God gives us this gift, why would he give us something that would feed into Satan's lie? He wouldn't. That's not what faith is about. We'll talk more about what faith is about in a minute here. Okay, so that's what, I don't think it means that. So what does it mean? What does ask and it will be given to you mean? What does it mean? It doesn't mean you can just have anything you want. What does it mean? Well, we have to examine the context, and we have to examine what else is said in Scripture to get to the answer. So we're going to go through some of those things here. We understand that God gives advantageous gifts to his children. Right? In Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus is, says basically the same thing. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? To those who ask him. It's the same idea from our passage in Matthew 7. What greater advantage is there than having God's spirit come live inside of me? I can't think of one. So see the point of this is that God is not giving us lousy or harmful gifts. He's giving us advantageous gifts. So that's one thing I think it's saying. I think God is also calling us to ask for things in his name. We see this elsewhere in scripture. There's a few on the screen here. One of them, John 14, 14. Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What does in his name mean? What does that mean? Well, it means to pray on the basis of Jesus' authority. Jesus is the son of God. Pray on the basis of his authority, but it also means I'm praying in submission to God's will. How do we know that's true? See the second verse on the screen. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, God the Father. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we are praying, hey, I want to do God's will. God the Father's will, because that's what Jesus did. We should pray according to his will. We should not pray for whatever we want, but for whatever God wants.
we also have to understand this passage in context. We go back a couple weeks. John Meyer was here and he talked on the passage from Matthew 6. Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I remember the way John put it. He said, I can be concerned with God's needs and God's will and let God take care of whatever I need, or I can be focused on mine and God will take care of his. Right? And so we read that in contest. What does asking that you shall receive mean? It means if I'm concerning myself with God's concerns, I'm concerning myself with God's will, with God's kingdom. So to be obedient to Jesus' call, I really should not want anything. I shouldn't want anything that's not God's will. If I find myself wanting something and it's outside of God's will, I really should change my wants to align with what God wants. I think that's part of what it's saying. In Romans 12, Apostle Paul clarifies this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how do we come to know God's will? We offer ourselves up as living sacrifices. We give up our desires, our will. We become living sacrifices. To align with God's will means I have to die to my own will. Other scripture for, for, further clarifies how we should ask. We should ask in faith. James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. Faith is a response to God's maximum love, right? We've talked about that. God loves us at the maximum level. How do we know it's the maximum level? Because he gave his only son up in our place so that we could have eternal life if we choose to receive that free gift. His love doesn't decrease. It's not dependent upon how we're acting. His love is at the maximum level. And so our faith is a response to that love. So we are to ask God. This verse tells us we are to ask God with faith as a response to his love. We are also supposed to ask in persistence. The scripture tells us in Luke 18, Jesus says he told them they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Always to pray and not lose heart. We are to ask and we are to keep asking without losing any confidence, without losing heart. We are to be persistent. We also to ask unselfishly. James 4.3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You ask so you can spend it on your passions. We are to ask. Clearly, we are not to be focused on ourselves. So, what does ask and it will be given to you mean? I think the clear answer comes in verses 9, 10, and 11. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? 
Like I said at the beginning, I love this part, and it resonates with me. I thought, man, what kind of illustration can I give? And the best illustration I can come up with is from my own family. So I have, you guys know I have several kids. My youngest son, Kellen, sitting over here drawing, hi, son. Kellen turns five this week. His birthday is this week. Kellen loves apples, right? Yeah, he loves apples. Right? And apples are good, aren't they? Right? We buy these delicious gala apples. We get them from Costco, right? Because there's a lot of us. We eat a lot of apples. Get a lot of apples there, right? He loves those. It's healthy. It's nutritious. They're delicious. They're sweet. They satisfy the cravings. They fill the belly. You're not hungry anymore. Kellen loves apples. And so, all the time, not all, well, yeah, probably all the time, he, any of our kids will do this, but Kellen will do this too, and he's the youngest, and he's just very, like, I'm hungry, let me eat. And he comes and he says, Dad, can I have an apple? Or Mom, can I have an apple? Well, of course, right? Why wouldn't he have an apple? He didn't say, can I have a candy bar? Or can I have, you know, caviar or something? You know, it's like, hey, that's a good thing to have. It's a good thing to have. He's got a pain of hunger, and he wants to eat. And he would say, why would you ever say no? Greg, why would you ever say no to him? Well, you know what? He has in the past come to us, and it's like he's like in the zone. And he doesn't notice that as he comes into the kitchen to ask us, there's all this stuff happening in the kitchen known as making dinner. And his mom and his other siblings and I, we're all making some delicious dinner, but he's hungry, and he comes in and he goes, Dad, can I have an apple? Whew. He doesn't know. He's only four. He goes, can I have an apple? Do I say yes? Why would I say yes? Well, because it's a good thing. It's a fruit, and it's nutritious, and it's delicious, all those things. And hey, it's going to satisfy his hunger. And... But what happens? I have a bigger picture. Maybe because I'm six feet tall instead of three feet tall. I have a better picture, and I can see the counter, and I go, dinner is getting made, and it's about to be served. And if he can just wait... He's going to get something better than an apple. Oh, but he's going to have the pain of hunger for a little while longer. But there's going to be something good that's going to come for him just very soon. I have, in some ways, in that, in that picture, more wisdom than he does. I have a, a better understanding of what's going on. And so I tell him no in those circumstances. Now, my older kids... They figured it out. And they can see the counter and they go, okay, I don't need to ask for the apple. I don't need it. I see dinner's coming. Doesn't get it. But see, I think like a parent, God does not respond to his kids asking for good things by automatically giving those good things. But this passage also tells us he doesn't give us bad things. Kellen doesn't come in and say, can I have an apple? And I go, here, have a snake. <laughs> right? No one would do that. It would be demented. God does not respond by automatically giving us what we want. Just like I don't automatically give it. You want an apple? It's a good thing. You can have it. There's a context. I see a bigger picture. And God sees the entire picture. He sees it all. He's outside of time. He's all-powerful. He knows how it's all going to fit together. And he's perfect. And he cannot give us the wrong thing. I'm imperfect. I'll probably give him the wrong things sometimes. Maybe often. I'm not good. God will never do that. He sees the whole picture. 
He's not going to give us the apple, even though I'm going to go, man, but God, I want the apple. I'm hungry and you won't give it to me and I'm going to be hungry and it's going to hurt and there's going to be challenges and it's going to be really hard. But God sees the bigger picture. Example in scriptures from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 9, the Apostle Paul's teaching teaching. He's talking here, he says, to keep me from being becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations that he's had. He says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded to God, to the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Ask and you shall receive, Paul. Ask and you shall receive. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God didn't give Paul what he asked for, even though it seemed like it was a good thing. And if he didn't get it, there was going to be this ongoing pain. So what was Paul's response? I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God didn't give Paul what he wanted. But Paul still called God good, didn't he? So then we can turn the corner here and say, what are the good things God will give us when we ask? Okay, Jesus said, ask and you receive, and maybe it's not anything, but it's probably good things. What are some good things we can get? See, at some point we do have to concede that if God is all-powerful and God is sovereign by definition, then if God wanted to be the ATM without the pin, or he wanted to be Costco without the checkout, he could be. He has that power. If I say, man, I really want a thousand pounds of chocolate, God actually has the power to make that show up at your door. He does. He's God. He can do that. You see somebody who's been crippled from birth and sitting in a wheelchair. You know what? If God wanted and saw a part fit with his plan for that person to stand up and walk and be healed, God actually does have that power. He has that power. He's not constrained. And so understanding that, we also have to recognize that he, he doesn't work that way all the time, does he? By observation, we see he doesn't work that way, but he still does. We just have to remember he, he did, and he still does, heal people, raise the dead, change hearts, bless people, do miracles. God has the power to do all that, and I believe in certain circumstances, he can and will do that. But it's according to his will. So we go, okay, if we can't really control that, what are some good things we can be really confident that when we ask God for those things he's going to give us? Well, here's a few of them. God will provide for our needs. He'll give us provision for our needs. Philippians 4.19 My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God will take care of your needs. We can take that one to the bank. What's another one? Forgiveness of sins. And I'm talking about the restored relationship. If we've got the free gift of salvation, we continue to sin, and yet we, oh, it breaks our relationship with God in some ways, and we need a restoration. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can take that one to the bank. Also have salvation from hell. Like we said, God loves us at the maximum level. He gave His Son for us. If we receive that free gift, we'll be saved from hell. In Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We can count on that one. 
God will also give us help in the midst of trials. There's a lot of verses on this. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. God will strengthen you in the midst of trials. You can count on that one. God will also give us comfort in the face of death, our own or others. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We can have comfort in the face of death. We can also trust and be sure that God will be with us in the extension of the gospel to the world. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Jesus commands it. And what does he say? Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Next week we're even going to talk a little bit more about a really unique opportunity we have to right from our midst send some people out to the other side of the world to get the gospel out. I'm really excited about talking about that next week. Alright, so those are some of the good things God will give us when we ask. But we can then start to ask this question. Why does God allow for bad? If, he's so, if God is so good, why does he allow for bad? That's a tiny little question, isn't it? <laughs> and I'm going to cover it right here. I'll touch on it. There's a lot more we could say about this. It's a small, small question. No, it's a big question. But I think we get something from this passage in that. See, faith is a response to God's maximum love for us. And if that's true, then part of faith is conceding the thing we said at the beginning. Saying, nope, God actually is sovereign. God is supremely powerful. I concede that that's true and I submit to his authority. Right? Just like I said, my older kids, they they begin to see like, oh yeah, there's, you know... Oh, dinner's coming. Shouldn't ask for the apple. Well, they also are understanding my authority as their dad. And Kellen, as he grows up and he understands, and he's going to understand my authority. And he's going to be submitted to my authority. And what does that do? It builds trust between he and I. He starts to trust me. And so when he comes in, he says, Dad, can I have an apple? And I say, no, you can't. He begins to understand, ah, I trust Dad. And so when we ask God, hey God, there's this thing and it's going on and maybe it doesn't work out that way, it still builds trust because we go, wow, I trust God that he's in control and he works these things out. A great example of this from Scripture is the story of Lazarus. Right In John chapter 11, Jesus has these friends, Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha, and Jesus is somewhere else and he gets word that Lazarus is very sick. To the point of death. And the sisters are saying, come quickly. Come so you can heal Lazarus. Come and heal him. Come be here. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't go. He waits. He purposely stays away. And Lazarus dies. Now, we even recognize, hey, Jesus is God and God is sovereign. And Jesus could have healed Lazarus from right where he was. Right? We see other examples in Scripture of Jesus healing somebody remotely. Like, he can do that. He didn't do that, and he didn't go. And he, quote-unquote, let Lazarus die. Jesus says this in the midst of John 11. He says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there. What? He was glad that Lazarus died? Jesus goes on. He says, I was glad. I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus stayed away and allowed Lazarus to die. Why? 
wow, what a story we have now of God raising someone from the dead and the faith of all of these people being built and it's this picture that fits into the tapestry of the story but in that moment I'm pretty sure Mary and Martha were like God, why didn't you give me the apple? But he had a plan. And I think that story is there in scripture to help us understand wow, why does God allow bad stuff to happen if he's so good? Because he is so good. That's why. Because he is so good. I think I've got a slide there yet. God's sovereignty does not necessitate always doing what we think is the best thing in the moments. It's so easy for us to say, I know what's best. This is what needs to happen, God. But God knows. God knows. Another part of the good fruit of our faith is that we get consumed with our relationship to God. We're consumed with it. We, our love grows, and I just think of my son Kellen here, and it's like every morning I'm sitting there, I'm reading my Bible, and he comes down the stairs and wakes up, and like the first thing he does is he runs over and he gives me a hug. And when I leave for work today, he comes up and gives me a hug. And when I come home from work, he comes and gives me a hug. I put him to bed, he gives me a hug. He's consumed with love. He's consumed with love. And that's what God wants from us, to be consumed with love for him and to trust him. John 16, 24, Jesus kind of says the same thing. He says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. God's sovereignty does not necessitate always doing good. And we find true joy not in getting everything we want, but in having relationship with him. That's where the true joy is found. It's not in getting the stuff. It's not asking you receive, and that's through the joy is in getting the stuff. The joy is in having a relationship with God. Okay, Greg, what about Psalm 37.4? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. See? I just delight myself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. It's so easy for us to read this verse and just kind of go, blah, 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 God is my ATM. (laughs) That's how we can read this verse. But this verse, I think, says something different. It implies that the person who's seeking has a change of heart. Do you see it? Delight yourself in the Lord. If I delight myself in the Lord, what happens to me? What happens to my desires and my concern and my will? They're superseded by God's. I take on God's will and God's concerns. I begin to, like I say, seek first his kingdom. His desires become my desires. I was trying to think of an illustration of this. 25 years ago, I was a teenager. And some of you know my wife, Christine. I didn't care a lick about what her desires and concerns were. I didn't even know her yet 25 years ago. A couple years later, we met, right? I didn't care. I didn't care what her concerns were because I had no idea who she was. But today, her concerns are at the top of my list. Why? Because I delight myself in her because she's my wife and I love her. Her desires have become my desires. And so in the same way as we love God and we respond to His love in faith, His desires become our desires. 
And then when we ask, we're asking for his will to be done. Remember the Lord's Prayer? What's the first thing Jesus says? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's how we're supposed to pray. So when it comes to this question, why does God allow for bad if he's so good? Look, part of faith, part of responding to God's love is enduring and walking through the challenges we have in life. Remember, Paul did that same thing there in 2 Corinthians He responded to this grand challenge and we don't know what the thorn was in Paul's flesh. And I think there's a reason we don't know because then it kind of applies to all of us. Part of our love for God is I am going through these challenges and I praise you and I call you good anyway, God. Somehow our hardships, our poverty, our illnesses, our infirmities, all of these things bring glory to God as part of his plan. So that's my final encouragement today is as you go through this week, as going through your day to day, let's each of us let's ask God and say, God, make my desires your desires. Make my heart one to love you, one to trust in your will. I'll pray and we'll close here. Yeah, God, we, we do just pray that today. Today. God, we think about asking you will receive. And God, we recognize you you're gonna give us advantageous stuff. And Lord, there's a scary thing when we go, oh, I wanna, I, you want me to let go of what's going on in my heart and my desires in my life and take on yours? You want me to seek first your kingdom, but what happens to mine? God, I ask you today that each one of us would take your desires and make them our desires. That we would be focused on your concerns and take to the bank that promise that you said you'll take care of our needs. Take care of our needs. Lord, help us in that. Help us to walk that out. Lord, thank you for the words of Jesus, Lord. We, we recognize that, God, we don't have any control over you. You're sovereign. And God, what a place we can rest. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross, demonstrating your maximum love for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.